hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office, wherever you are. With me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is the podcast which looks at the world of work as it is, as it could be, should be, might be, with some of the leading thinkers and doers of the day. Well, hello and welcome back to the Nowhere Office. This is Stefan Stern. Back in London, uh, alongside my buddy, Julia Hobsbawm, who has been presenting from the US. And again, we're going back to the US today to hear a bit more from what she picked up. Yes, indeed, Stefan. Sorry, I had uh, better bagels than you for yet another excursion um, to America. But we are focusing on America at work. I'm sitting in a very beautiful office. I spend quite a lot of time not being pro-office, but I'm sitting in a very, very stunning office looking right out at the uh, Empire State Building in the office of Dave Eisenberg at the Zig Capital in downtown Manhattan. Zig is um, a... It accelerates real... It's a prop tech company. So, hello. Hello. Welcome to your own office. Thank you. It's great <laughs> to be here. Why have you still got an office in a city that is absolutely in crisis over office space? It does not look like your office is in crisis. We are fortunate that we have a small team that enjoys working together in person. We have a beautiful space that is frankly more pleasant than my own home office and we frequently host people to the office we host uh, our own investors our limited partners Um, we host founders who are contemplating whether we want to invest in their business and then we host the portfolio companies that we've already entered into a financial agreement with so doing all of that virtually is inferior to doing it in person and so we have an office because the cost of having that office is exceeded by the value of the time that we spend together, the community that we build in doing that, and then the features of the office that would be hard to replicate otherwise. I mean, not least the view. Statue of Liberty on one side of the office and Empire State Building on the other. And the views are nice. You know, when you're like grinding in a, in a hard day, I feel like you, you don't take notice of them because you're indoors and you'd rather be outdoors or, or something to that effect. But I think that uh, there are moments, like today's a particularly beautiful day after we've had a lot of rain the last few weeks. And I do think it is an enhancement to my overall work day that uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to look at. It's quite low key though as an office building, just talking about the particularities of, of, of what people like environmentally. It's it's not a vast seven elevator building with turns. Our specific office, yeah. No, this, um, so, so we're here in the meatpacking district. For those who are not familiar with New York, this was not a place that had a lot of commercial office. It had some very, uh, well, many years ago, it was literally a meatpacking, you know, area. And then it kind of became cool with a handful of, of nightclubs, frankly, that that really sort of drew the young and the trendy to the area. And then that brought some great restaurants and then it brought some great retail. I might actually confide that back in my youth, I used to come <laughs> to 
dives in the meat packing right, district right. before it became super cool. Yeah, super cool. When it was differently uh, super cool. And then I guess, you know, over the last decade or two, because it's so conveniently clustered to the neighborhoods of West, the West Village and Chelsea, there actually have been a number of offices that have popped up. The, the tech company Yext is right here on one side. On the other side, we've got Live Nation. And then, and then this office building is a new office building, so it's got, uh, you know, everything is modern in terms of the, the views of the building, the um, the floor plates and so forth. And our, our office, ironically, opened on April 1, 2020, literally as, as New York was, was shutting down with great force and every night was ambulances everywhere. But uh, we came into the office basically that fall, the fall of 2020, when it was still early to do so, but because the floor plates here are probably like six, 7,000 square feet or so, you can't support massive companies. Mo most of the uh, groups that are in this building are either investment firms that don't have a huge number of headcount, or they're, um, they're kind of like boutique consultancies. Uh, and I think there's a, I, I actually don't think there are any startups in this building. I think this is a little bit more of it's expensive office for sure. But I was also, going to say it's for grown-ups. Yeah, it's, uh, for, it's, well, it's for people who don't think that their headcount is going to um, be super volatile. I, I think that's probably the best way to put it. But it is also the case that these are exactly the kind of offices that do survive, that they're not vast, they're not limitless, they're not trying to cater for a dwindling dream of tens of thousands of people being based in the same place. I mean, the, the corporate world is actually littered with the corpses, really, of companies whose real estate portfolios and HR plans are in ruins. Have I, am I overstating yeah, that? Yeah, so I, I think you're, you're stating a truth and you're stating a piece of the puzzle, which is that um, the real estate stays fixed in place longer than the companies or the people who work for those companies stay fixed in place. And what we saw as a function of COVID was just a huge amount of internal migration in the United States. And that meant that people, while they were allowed to work remotely from their job, where maybe they weren't previously allowed to work remotely, moved somewhere, probably to a lower cost you know, part of the country where they had more space. And then when the offices you know, reopened, they realized that a bunch of their people were no longer in the region. And so they were forced with the choice of, do I terminate that role or that person because they're no longer here? Or the easier thing to do is just to let people keep working for you because they know you know what they know how to do the job and so now now you've got a situation where you have the real estate you have the lease obligation but you don't have the people to fill it and i think what we're seeing now is just a major contraction in the total amount of space that people want to take but you're also seeing a revolution in the concept of what space is for and what work space is for i mean You've done a second round of funding since I last spoke yeah. to you. Um, for those that uh, even vaguely get their head around such things, you now have a sort of, I think, coffers of $200 million that you can spend uh, investing in new kinds of property. And I'm guessing they're well, going to be mixed use. Or? Let, let me correct that a little bit. So so what we do as, as our firm, Zig, is that we are an investment firm that invests in technology companies that are connected to real estate construction and retail. So we ourselves do not invest in real property. So give us an sure. example, maybe even yeah. name some organizations. Sure, sure. 
So if I zoom way out, the class of venture capital firms invest in companies that heavily themselves invest in research and development for years before they're profitable businesses and the hopes that they become very big and one day go public and become companies that you've heard of. Over the last 15 years, um, venture capital itself has fragmented into groups that consider themselves specialists and then groups that continue to be generalists. Some of those generalists have gotten to be very big so that they sort of have seeded the terrain of doing very early stage investing, which is what we do. Uh, that can be a company's first round or possibly second round financing. And then in the specialist zone, we are competing uh, to try to be the best firm by returns for a company that sort of hives off real estate construction and retail related businesses, also sometimes those that have a fintech area. Um, th and that's really our, what we cover. We don't do biotech, we don't do you know social media and so forth. So I'll give you some quick examples. Uh, a high profile company of ours uh, is a construction software business called openspace.ai. Openspace uh, puts very commodity cameras on the helmets of construction professionals. And then they use very sophisticated computer vision to read the visual data off of the helmets that come in every day to create a 360 degree view of what happened on that job site that day. It's all geolocated to a floor plan or to a uh, building information model. So you can actually pick a spot on a floor plan and then go backwards in time and see what happened on, at that spot on that day. So as a site gets built, you can see behind the walls and you can see what was built where and you can determine if there was a conflict between a GC and a sub, you can resolve you know, uh, questions of liability as to who did what. GC where. being a general contractor general and, contractor and a sub. Contractor. Exactly. Um, and it allows you to have the perfect facilities management software thereafter because you know exactly what's behind the wall so you never need to you know, crack open a wall and see what's going on. With and that's an interesting example to cite, not only because it's got the magic words AI, but also because it's about um, directly impacting a workplace. What are the trends that you're seeing around how work tech buildings are shifting? I think, so, so in the last few years, it's been amazing how quickly the zeitgeist has moved on, let's go full remote, uh, all the way to a, a real pushback, I think, from new tech companies populated with very young people who are saying, if I have the choice of working remotely or working in person, with my team, I actually prefer the in-person, you know, team. Um, with, of course, many, many exceptions of people who vastly would prefer to live in the mountains and not ever see, you know, somebody day to day. But I think the world has become a lot. At least our world has become a lot more confused about um, what these net new companies are actually setting up to do. Because I, I do believe that. Everyone understands that if you can attract a global labor force, you will find. Uh, lower cost people and you will find higher quality people than if you narrow your your search fields to a given geography. That, that That's sort of a given. Now, what is not a given is how people are measuring the cost of working remotely. And so uh, I've had many, many conversations with the CEOs in our portfolio the last two years where people are frustrated with how to 
communicate well or effectively with four or 500 people remotely where everyone's on mute on a Zoom and there's not real feedback. There's no uh, chatter after a company meeting where you know people can say that resonated with me or that didn't. You have, you have much more difficulty in assessing uh, morale because you're sort of reliant on these pulse reports where people submit their own you know sense of what they like or what they don't. And a lot of people prefer the feel of being able to walk in office and be able to sense those things and sense the energy. You know, there's a lot of, um, this is a very, very crude proxy, but I do think that a lot of people are influenced by how long people are in the office for, how many hours are they working in. Um, and when people are working remotely, it's this fully ambiguous day, you know, of did I take a a break in the middle of the day to cook myself a gourmet lunch. You know, did I did I take a break to go pick up my children? Did I take a break to, you know, go do an, an exercise? And I think that while people can understand on one side that that might make for a more healthy work environment and, and maybe a happier person, there's a cost to that as well. Well, there's certainly data showing that, you know, there's a difference between the productivity metrics versus the well-being yes. metrics. But equally, there's overwhelming uh, data to suggest that hybrid is here. And one of the reasons is the commute and time, that somehow the measurement of time has become absolutely central to how people feel about the value of why they work and when they work. Uh, the Flex Index Scoop Industries has shown as something like the equivalence of an 8% uh, bump in pay is what people would trade mm -hmm. to have flexibility. Um, so does that mean, Dave, that the cities where there is low to no commute are going to have more presenteeism? Is that, the, is that the extrapolation we should make? I think... Um we were briefly chatting about this before uh, we turned on the recorder, but I, I think these things are multivariable. You know, it's it's not simply the case that if you have a nice office with an average commute, let's call it under twenty minutes per person, that people will all of a sudden show up and be and be happy and productive. I, I do believe that on an individual level your worker is going to question the purpose of being at the office if their job can be done somewhere else. And what, what we find is that a lot of our early, early stage companies where there is literally a whiteboard where you've got someone is drawing on it and someone else is commenting on it and then, and then the roles switch and someone else pops up and you build on these ideas. These are the things that people are finding the most difficult to do remotely. Or, or if you're pair programming where you have one person that's literally watching the other person um, write the software, uh, th there is... But um, you can get those together for immersive births. You can rearrange the time can, but, and the system. But if, if the bulk of your job is the creation of something new, at least for a year or two or three, which is sort of how these companies work from zero to something or zero to nothing, um, I think people are preferring to be in person. Maybe not five days a week, but certainly the bulk of the week. And as an investor... Presumably, it's reasonable to want the people you're investing in to basically be working all the time, de facto. I mean, that is the, that is the stereotype. 
Um, And so there you have it. That's the paradox. Well, I I don't think the investors in any way are dictating terms here. I I don't think, I've certainly never found myself in a situation where I've told one of our companies, I think it would be better for you to work in person. And I would say each of those time zones has a different approach to working in office versus working remotely. And so they're all connected by the fact that they're you know, doing work and creating work and jobs. They are located somewhere and they're in technology. Well, even the second question I, I, I would debate because for a company where the entire workforce is remote and they only get together on a quarterly basis in person, it is very difficult for me to say where that company is located. I know that there is an address somewhere on some corporate document, but um, if if the founder who put that document down no longer lives in San Francisco, but instead lives in Lake Tahoe, I, I don't know. So it's not a deal breaker for you, even though you're, you've made quite a strong case and you, you are living it in your, um, you know, posh office here in downtown Manhattan, but but you're, you're, you're not totally dictatorial that you only invest oh, in companies. Yeah, that... no, not at all. I, I mean, if, I, if we meet a company that has very strong views about the benefits of working remotely and everybody at that company is on board with that approach and what they're building is clearly resonating, there's, of course we would be interested in investing in it. Um, I think of an example of one of our youngest businesses uh, was founded last year. Uh, the founder has a PhD in computer science. We, he and I went to undergraduate together many years ago. But um, he is, is based in Pittsburgh. That, that's where his family is from. He's got four kids there. He's a software engineer. Um, I don't think he has any expectation whatsoever that his other employees will be in Pittsburgh with him. Like he, he just expects that he'll hire the best people wherever they are. And I think, you know, we literally funded that company when it was just him. And our our notion the whole time was that this was going to be a remote first company that was going to have a lot of travel to visit customers. Our series partner for Series 5 is Assure, which is a remote location business that makes remote work easy. Do look them up and check them out. A lot of professional migration happening, isn't there, from north to south in the United States, which again is new and that's not just about lower tax it's it's about quality of life isn't it and that presumably is changing the portfolio of what your organizations that you fund do for sure um if i had to sort of summarize the migration of people in the united states I, i do believe a big chunk of it is just the search for more affordable housing and that has moved people from uh, north to south in general, and um, it's moved people specifically to the southeast and the southwest, and cities such as Nashville or Charlotte, Nashville, Tennessee, Charlottesville, Austin, uh, Texas, Austin, Texas, um, Miami, uh, Miami. You would also include e- even sort of slightly. Uh, smaller places or, or things that are kind of Charlotte, off the radar. North Charlotte, Carolina, Knoxville, uh, Atlanta. Mm. Th- these are places that are benefiting from a lot of uh, migration. Um, over the last several years, that would have included Phoenix as well. 
um, and uh, and all these places are sort of sprouting up uh, technology hubs, you know, there, but. Um, but it's very difficult to create a, a net new engine of company creation that is often highly connected to um, the capital that wants to fund it, but also the universities that are producing graduates, you know, to, to go into those areas. Well, you're bringing me on to um, a big question I have for you, which is graduates and college educated professors. There seems to be not just a uh, there seems to be a revolution happening, not just in the patterns of work and, and the location of work, but the skills that get you to the jobs. There's a sort of rejection happening or the, the murmurings of a, of, a, of a serious rejection of the college degree as being the path to work. I mean, you're a forecaster apart from anything else. Are you forecasting yeah. that the workforce is in fact becoming more physical and manual and technical in an AI era rather than an, a knowledge degree-led one? It's interesting because I can, I think I can make the argument on both sides here. Um, I think one output of all of the energy that's going into producing these artificial intelligence large language models is that it's going to open up the creation of digital roles to people who did not study technical degrees in, in a much deeper way. Uh, I, I watched a demonstration where a person used natural language to ask them to build a very simple mobile application and it wrote the code based on the natural language instructions and the app was like functional. And so that you can just imagine that that's the state of the art today where this is going to be a year or two from now. You know, you might have uh, all the humanities graduates be able to do the web development roles or mobile app development. And, and those roles have short, very, very big mismatches between how many people can do those roles and how many jobs are available. There's a real shortage of talent for a lot of these technical roles. And so if some portion of those technical roles can now be done by people who weren't formally trained in those um, you know, fields, like that, that's a really big unlock. Um, but I was also listening to Tim Cook was speaking about why Apple invests so heavily in China. And he was making the point that for many years, it has not been the case that China is a low cost labor. We actually talk about this in our, our Q3 letter to our own investors. Um, the average age of uh, some of these advanced tooling roles in China of the employee base is is in their 40s. It's not as if this is like, you know, the most youthful, you know, working population. And what Tim Cook was saying is that in the United States, if you needed uh, super high precision tooling, I don't know if I would call them engineers or if I would call them mechanical workers. He's like, in the United States, maybe you could fill a large conference room. He's like, in China, you can fill many, many football fields over and over again. And he said it was really the thought that they put into advanced vocational training decades ago that has created such opportunity, I think, for like a big chunk of their workforce. And, and that, I think, is one big piece that's missing in the United States, is that we have vocational schooling for HVAC technicians, and we have... What's it, HVAC? Sorry, um, <laughs> uh, the air conditioning system. Oh, okay. Heating and yeah. ventilation. Yeah. Um, I just remember the TV... Uh, TV advertisements for for those from my youth, you know, uh, and, and you know for plumbing and so forth. And you can have a really good 
life, you know, making low six figures of income with make your own hours, et cetera, if you go into those fields. And we have uh, a crisis that youth don't want to go into those roles because they're either not considered high status or it's considered too much hard work, et cetera. But that, that is a thing where there are a lot of jobs available and there's going to be more jobs that are available as the aging of the U.S. population you know, continues retirements uh, out of the baby boom. But the, the other thing that we don't have is we don't have a robust infrastructure for advanced vocational skills that are connected to the digital economy. So those would be roles in uh, advanced manufacturing or in software development. You know, we, we've sort of got a pop-up kind of uh, approach to creating vocational schools there. But I think that when you hear about people who critique the utility of a seventy or eighty thousand dollar a year university education, where you know the person might be studying a soft science or, or might be studying literature, etc., and then with piling on a lot of debt to go and do that, that debt is increasingly expensive and so forth, and then to sort of be funneled into a you know capitalist society where the entry level job for someone who doesn't have specific skills you know, might be less than the annual cost of attending university, that's where reasonable people might say, is this a good trade, you know? Uh, and, and, and But are you saying that the, that the antidote to that is not yet in place? You know, you have the US Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, talking sort of abstractedly about apprenticeships, but you're talking about a, a, a sort of, na- in America, the idea that there's an absence of a nationwide sort of academy of vocational training. It's it's possible that the antidote, the infrastructure already exists, but um, the incentives maybe are mis- misallocated. An example would be, there are many, many robust community colleges around the United States that don't cost anything remotely like what, you know, a private education in the United States would. Um, we are not funneling large numbers of the type of student who's expected to go to a U.S. university, a private U.S. university that, you know, let's call it in the top 200 of the United States. We're not funneling a large number of those people to community colleges where the burden that they'll take on debt-wise is much smaller and the opportunity set on the other end might be might be more robust and it might be, um, you know, filled with sort of these long-term jobs that are well-paid. So, as I understand it, what you're saying as we sort of begin to wrap this up, although it's fascinating talking to you, I'd like to be a little bird on your shoulder, Dave, on your conference calls. I feel I could learn a lot. But as I understand it, what you're saying is that the jobs are changing, that we're going to have an economy of... um, digital and technological skills-based work that we're not actually, there's no real pipeline for in America. So where's that going to end? I mean, America is still the biggest economy in the world. It's actually, um, there's some data showing that even the very poorest are doing better than they were relative um, to a few years ago, but the, the wealth disparity is still, you know, abhorrently large. Mm-hmm. But is America under threat, do you think, because of the emerging tech, the tech you're investing in? I would say because America 
still today is the locus of where that innovation is being built. You know, if right. you sort of contrast it to any other c- country in the world, there are more startups being created here that go on to be of real value than anywhere else in the world. And the, the openness of our society, I think, continues to draw would-be immigrants from everywhere. And so I think for as long as those two things are true, I'm, I'm quote, long America, you know, in terms of the, uh, the, the likelihood of American success on an economic basis. What you're addressing is, you know, there are many other ways to answer that question that are not purely economic, you know, and I think the U.S. Um, does have a lot to learn from Europe about how to create a better safety net and how to um, how to educate its populace and how to take care of the least resourced among us, you know, how to do that better. Um, what I'm confident in is that the corporations in the U.S. are going to participate in the re-education of the U.S. population to help bring the skills to their corporations that are needed. And so you could imagine, for instance, uh, like today, there's very little robotics in our daily lives. Uh, Just in every dimension, the average person interacts with very few robotic, you know, uh, services. I am it's gonna, going to change though quickly, yeah, I'm isn't take it? The point yes. of view. I'm going to take the point of view that over the next 20 years, uh, it is going to be it is a very simple bet for myself to win, you know, for because I'm setting the terms. But I'm going to say it's that, a very financial uh, position yeah. to take. In, 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 in the next uh, 20 years, we will each deal with more robots than we deal with today. And those robots could take the form of autonomous vehicles, be they buses or cars. It could take the, the point of view of home health aides. You know, it could take the point of view of um, convenient services to do a number of things. And so when you think about the creation of robots, there's all of these jobs that go into manufacturing them. There's all of the jobs that go into maintaining them. There are jobs that go into um, sort of error handling when something goes wrong. And none of those jobs really exist in any scale today, but they will. I'm glad you said that, actually, because I was reading about a robot called Apollo that is going to come on stream by about 2025. And we've sort of slightly forgotten about robots because we're talking about AI and we're yep. talking about return to the office. But it did strike me that that the visibility of new technology is in fact going to be robotics. And you're, you're slightly confirming that. And I think these things are related. You know, the, the reason why robots will probably come here sooner than they would have otherwise is because of these breakthroughs in AI. And I think that... Um, we're already seeing, I mean, there's a lot of what, what's, co- what's called robotic process automation on the software side where uh, machines are capable of doing highly repetitive things better than people, you know, with fewer errors, certainly, you know, there's no, there's no tire, you know, to, to, their, to their efforts and so forth. So um, I think that we are going to... Uh, well, maybe- actually, that's slightly... Not true in the sense that the batteries run out. <laughs> that's true, that's true. <laughs> They're still but figuring it, uh, out the battery uh, life. We're getting better on uh, swappable batteries. We're getting better on battery yeah. storage. There, there's a, yeah. there, there are many reasons to be optimistic about um, all of the things that technology will be able to do for people. I do tend to wake up most, <laughs> this sounds quite penglossy. I wake up most mornings and I think, 
it, it's sort of it's morning in America. Like there's a lot of great new things that are going to come to bear, and uh, and it's going to create a huge amount of uh, economic opportunity for the whole world. Well, that is the most optimistic American <laughs> note on which to end this interview. Thank you so much, Dave Eisenberg of SIG Capital. Thanks for coming in. It just remains for me to thank you for listening to this episode of The Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. It's a fully connected production. Our series partner for Series 5 is Assure, which is a remote location business that makes remote work easy. Um, And do look them up and check them out. And thank you to our production team of uh, Kevin, very far away from us in Miami, and to you, our listener and viewer. We're on all the usual socials to listen and watch and on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. 